Greetings from the Holly Central School District Library. This is Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear. Today I'm joined by Dan Light, Mike Christman, and Matt Hennard, and this is Nick DeMurrow. We have a great show for you today with lots of topics. Um, we're running short on questions, though. We really need to start hearing from you a little bit more. Um, you can email us those questions at hollyhistory65 at gmail.com or tweet us at hollyhistory and uh, get those in as soon as possible. Now, we're, we're going to skip over a segment today, which is uh, normally we talk about what's going on in our classrooms, to talk about a question that uh, we came up for Pick the Brain, and that is, who is the greatest Western military leader of all time? We, we kind of passed up um, the greatest military leader of all time because we really didn't want to, we didn't want to, you know, compare uh, Eastern history versus Western history. We want to really isolate them. Maybe we can do the Eastern one at some point, but I think I know who I'm going to go with, which is probably, um, you know, someone from the Mongols most likely in the Eastern one, but uh, that's neither here nor there. So what, greatest Western military leader of all time. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and go last. Mike, why don't you kick us off? All right, I'm going to kick it. I'm going to go William Tecumseh Sherman on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I know we've been talking about it. Uh, he can certainly uh, can jump in on it. But uh, to me, Sherman is the, uh, the epitome of uh, total warfare. Uh, he really puts the screws to the Southerners. Um, lives off the land, destroys things. You know, Sherman's neckties, if, if, if you've never read about Sherman's neckties, it's always an interesting subject to read about. They're taking the railroad. They're pulling up the um, the wooden part of the railroad, using it as a bonfire. Don't you have rel- relatives in the south? I do have. I have relatives in, from the railroad, not from the south. Okay. <laughs> um, but um, you know, the, the rail. Well, and the railroad's key to what he's doing too. Uh, destroying things, moving his own, uh, and he's also out there on his own. I mean, he's really he's scavenging the, uh, this countryside. He's destroying everything in his path. Um, you know that old saying: "You know, I'll make Georgia howl." Um, there's a great story I learned years ago about uh, some de- some delegate from Georgia went to the Philippines, and not understanding the song uh, "Marching Through Georgia," the Filipino band was playing "Marching Through Georgia" as this delegate came off the plane, and uh, the guy turned around and went, got back on the plane and left, and never even met with the Philippine government. Um, so yeah, understanding historical context. Um, but t- Sherman is just one of those guys that uh, complex guy. Uh, they think he's a drunk in the, at the beginning of the war. He actually goes to a sanitarium for a while and then comes back and really kind of um, comes into his own. Total warfare, I mean, he's the guy who used the phrase, war is all hell, uh, because he made it that way. Um, but to me, if you're, if you're looking at modern warfare, you're looking at, at great leadership and, and getting the most out of your men, to me, uh, Sherman is, is doing that. You know, he leaves a, a swath of destruction in Carolina 60 miles wide and 300 miles long. And just trying to even uh, imagine what that looked like uh, is, is hard to fathom. So he's, in my mind, he is, is up there. Of course, I have an American history bias, <laughs> but, um, but I know folks think other things. So, Matt, you want to go next? Yeah, well, you know, I was thinking to come to William to come to Sherman myself because <clears throat> of that idea of total war. But I guess uh, you know, I'm going to go back to I'll have to go with Charlemagne. I, you could go back as far as, you know, Alexander the Great or somebody like Julius Caesar, but um Charlemagne, I guess uh based on, you know, my understanding of Charlemagne and the, the attempt at rebuilding the Roman Empire right after it's been destroyed by the Germanic tribes. Um Charlemagne is able to uh, recreate, or to the best of his ability, recreate a large 
empire in Europe for the first time in a few hundred years. And he does that uh, basically because of his military prowess, right? His military is what allows him to reconquer those territories that were, that were essentially taken by the Germanic tribes at the end of the original Roman Empire. Um, his use of cavalry uh, basically put his troops, his leaders, uh, his military above and beyond those of the other European fighting forces at the time. And I think that if you look at you know modern medieval history, uh, the, the cavalry, the knights, right, they are really what is driving the fighting during the Middle Ages after that, and that kind of stems from Charlemagne himself. So I guess I would have to probably take Charlemagne, um, although I guess if you're talking about fighters on horseback, we might end up coming back to Eastern history eventually. We have to do that, I think. Yeah. I think it would be unfair if we, if we didn't do it at some point. Um, Dan, who you got? Well, I, I like what you're saying about the Mongols. So they were like the largest continuous empire at one point. But honestly, I would probably go with Caesar. I think I would go with Caesar, just because I know he was in three different continents at one point. And uh, I just think it's amazing what he did, honestly, when he gets up to Britain and he gets into what is France and um, the Gallic campaign. It's just crazy. I mean, he just conquers and sort of like... You know, he was a renegade. He came back, he crossed the Tiber, and he, he basically chased those guys out of the Senate. And it just, it's no wonder that they murdered him. You know what I mean? I thought he, was a, he was a butt kicker, and um, I just, I don't know. I've always really liked the, the whole Caesar thing, honestly. But I like the other choices you guys have made already. I got to go. I'm going to agree with Dan. Dan, I should went in front of him because I'm, I'm going with Julius Caesar, too. I'm, I'm a Roman. Family in near Rome still. I, I have to do it. Um, I go with Julius Caesar, and, and I've had people ask me who would win, Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great. And that's a great question. I think Alexander the Great deserves to be on the list. I think some other honorable mentions too be Napoleon and Hannibal. Um, yeah, he was, he was, he was good. Um, but Julius Caesar, to me, has to be on there because if you look at what he did in Concord, he, he conquers Gaul officially, and he, it's not like he conquers a weak Gaul. I mean, Vercingetorix, the, the, the leader of the Gauls, is, is a formidable foe. And I wouldn't even consider Gaul necessarily like his, I mean, it is the greatest triumph. And the way he does it is it's an operation logistics. Um, you want to talk about logistics. Granted, the armies are smaller than modern armies, but he's ahead of his time. And I think that's why I would say that Julius Caesar would beat Alexander. And not only because of the, the time periods in history, because the technology is not that different. He beats Alexander because he has operations logistics that Alexander has like, not that he never did it, but he just does things that Alexander couldn't even fathom. How long does Alexander conquer? I'm just curious. Because I'm thinking back to Caesar, right? right? Isn't it seven years or something? Well, Caesar, well, Alexander was a shorter, campaign. he didn't have to prove it over. He didn't yeah, prove he did, it over. He dies right. at what, like 32 or yeah, 33 or something? It, yes. And, and Caesar proved over a longer range of time. I mean, Caesar defeats, he, he gets Gaul. He, this is the one thing everybody forgets about, the Germanic tribes that are so fearsome. I mean, the Kimrys and the Teutons come down. Um, in right before his lifetime, before and scare the bejesus out of the Romans, he goes in and beats a couple German tribes, scares the crap out of them, and they're behind the Rhine because he builds that massive builds bridge, bridge. Bridge builds yep. a massive bridge the across bridge, the Rhine, bridge. goes to Britain, scares the heck out of them, and he just pushes the boundaries of the empire so far. And then when he comes back to Rome, he beats Pompey the Great, <laughs> another great general of uh, uh, legions of Romans outside the, and in. So yeah, <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. He, who, who didn't the guy beat? And yeah. Also, he sustained some defeats in that Gallic campaign, 
and was able to rebound from them too. So I really I would agree. I gotta go with Caesar. I have to state for the record, I am shocked you didn't say Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> <laughs> He's not a general. He's always a colonel. I think the thing about Alexander the Great, though, that you have to. I mean, he takes down the Persians. I, I don't think. I don't think that. He's necessarily better uh, than than Julius Caesar, but I think the big thing that that Alexander the Great had to overcome is the multitude of cultures that he's going to bring. Mm-hmm. And he's really the idea creating that Hellenistic image, right? Yeah. By not not and maybe he, he took a page out of the Romans' book, or I mean, I'm sorry, Greece. maybe the the yeah, the, the, the yeah. Romans took a page out of his book they did. in their conquering of people. And I guess Alexander the Great setting that stage and saying like. You don't. We're gonna blend our cultures, right? Taking all of those wives mm-hmm. from different cultures mm-hmm. instead of making it like entering. Yes, he's a conqueror. Yes, he's vicious, but he's also folding those cultures into the fold versus subjugating them. And I think that that is something that he has to at least get some credit for, creating that idea of Hellenism, mm-hmm. Hellenistic culture, yeah. mixing India, Persian, Greek, everything all together. So to play devil's advocate a bit, there are historians who say. That saying he created the Hellenistic, Hellenistic culture is shooting the arrow and then paying the bullseye around it after, mm-hmm. because was that his intent, or was it to <laughs> conquer land and get glory and take down empires and? Or does intent matter? I agree. With, right, I, yeah, I would agree with you. Right, I'm just right, I'm right, just yeah, throwing right. things out there and right, facilitating. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, but I would say, but okay. So if you ask me who the greatest overall general is of Western culture, I go with Caesar because of his logistic and his history. Fair but enough. if you ask me who I got to pick to win one battle. I gotta win one battle. That's it. I'm picking probably Alexander, because look, I mean, look at the things he did. And the last point about Alexander I make too is, um, would that that sustaining that he was going for with the wives and everything and all that, and there was a lot of his generals that were really upset with him. They they thought that he was sacrificing the cultural values. So I'm wondering if Alexander didn't die, does he have a different legacy? That's a great question. If you think about yeah, it, you know what I mean? Question. It's kind of like Lincoln at Reconstruction. Oh, yeah. is, right, right, would Lincoln right. have been able to walk that tightrope, or was him prematurely dying better for his legacy? Right. I don't know. Would, would his Reconstruction have tarnished Lincoln's legacy? Yeah. That, another, another great question. That would be great if we could get that question yeah, to come yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. Right, right. So right. speaking of questions, I'm, uh, I'm going to move on with the, the next question here. This comes from Dan Stanley, one of our uh, Holly alum. Uh, nice to hear from a former student. Um, he actually listened in on our first podcast and, uh, and sent in a question. Uh, his question was, my generation, born in the late 90s, uh, grew up in a, a period of rapid technological revolution and expansion, and from a teacher's perspective, how teachable are we compared to earlier generations as it relates to social studies? <laughs> I thought, well, that's that's a fantastic question. So Dan um, and Mike got to really take the lead here. <laughs> I was going to say, you're I'm not, those, right? I'm not sure. So is Matt. We're not trying oh. to insult you guys. Uh, 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 but yeah. we don't have Maybe those, we should turn it around. I we don't have the, the older oh, teachers been able to handle all we don't have the changes. We don't have the longevity <laughs> to have a good sample size. Well, That's what I'm saying. You guys are you, you're wise. That's what I'm going to say. Seasoned, I think, was the word you were looking seasoned, for. Yeah, that's <laughs> I guess I'll start off with that because I've had this discussion with a lot of folks, especially recently around here, that um, our kids today technolo- technologically have access to more stuff than I could ever imagine. I mean, I, in college, I was still working. Literally. With, <laughs> seriously, that is no joke. Yeah. I mean, in college, we were using card catalogs still, microfiche. Um, what you know, is that? And for those of you, you know, go, <laughs> go look it up if you don't know what it is. Um, maybe at the very end of the microfiche era, but I, didn't, I tried to avoid it at all costs. Well, and because I did we too, had computers but, by the but time yeah, I But got you had it. to. Um, 
So we have, they have access to more stuff. Like the, I mean, they have access to the archives, the Library of Congress, all this, all this information I've killed to have access for or access to to write papers and things. But what's interesting is they've lost an ability. There's an ability that's that's challenging to teach, and that is to not just take the information and regurgitate it. Which I think the old, I think the younger, I think the generations when I first was teaching here, a number of years ago when I first started, were really good at learning the information and giving it back to you, and that was challenging because the information wasn't readily available. Now the information is readily available, and now we're trying to get them to synthesize and create analysis and mm -hmm. make a claim and support it. That is tough. They can regurgitate a lot because that's easy. It's just go out and find it and give it back. It's that it's that apply the information. Um, create a uh, in one of our classes we created a persuasive PowerPoint and students struggled with that because it wasn't just finding the information and giving the information back it was trying to do it in a way that was persuasive to prove a point and, and I know that I know the kids uh, hate the hate the phrasing that the English teachers use of you know make a claim and uh, provide evidence to back it up, but that's what historians do, and that's what they've always done. Yeah, I've ran into that a little bit uh, recently. We just did uh, an Industrial Revolution debate, and uh, I found that the kids were really, really great at finding information about changes associated with the Industrial Revolution and the modern technological revolution, but they weren't great at proving it, right? They, they understand, yeah. and, and I don't know if that's necessarily a product, I don't think that's not their fault. They, they're not, they, it doesn't make them unteachable. They're learning and some of them are going to be very able in order to do that. Um, but I think it's that that plethora of knowledge that is there, Ooh. it's, it's <laughs> searching through it, right? Figuring out what's important and what's not mm -hmm. and then yeah. using facts and statistics to prove that. That's that analysis, right? So you can make a claim but you've got to support it with evidence. So I can put down a whole bunch of information that I found that we as historians know to be true and they assume is true because we are telling them that it's true, but can they prove that it is actually true? And that's, that's I think, going to be the biggest issue. And, you know, it comes into obviously modern day as well, like with all of the, the sources on the internet, mm -hmm. how do you know what to trust and what not? I was going to say, there's, too, there's, there's there too much stuff. Yeah. That was what I was going to say. There's too Listen, much stuff today. So, 30 years ago, yeah. right, when I was in college, I remember going and writing papers for, you know, professors, and it was like, find five good sources in the library, five good sources, and do a good job reading, summarizing, synthesizing. And that was like a big part of it, was going to the library, getting in the card catalog of the fiche, yep. finding the sources. Yeah. That was the big challenge, you know, when I was in college, and maybe Mike and you guys too. But Blowing now the there's so the much, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like... Is it is it too much? That yep. it, some things are not accurate. Uh, what sites can we trust? What can we not? It's almost like an information overload. Yeah, and overload, I said to my son right. last night, he was playing, um, he was playing one of his Xbox games, and he's like, "Do you think that playing all these video games are bad for me, Dad?" He said that to me. I thought it was interesting, and I was like, "Well, I don't know, Andrew." I was like, "Think about this." Over the last number of thousand years, did anyone sit down staring at a screen for two or three hours at a time with a multitude of things going by you? Do you think that this is good for people? And so it's, it is interesting because there are so many sources out there. Things have changed so much. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, it's just, it's, it's really unbelievable. Well, it's changed the way we teach. I mean, I think Absolutely. back, oh, yeah. Yeah. you and I are closer, <laughs> closer in experience. Yeah. I think back to my first few years of teaching and the way I taught then and the way I teach now, 
and it's literally night and day, like just completely different. I never thought, if you had told me 10 years ago I was using something like YouTube as much as I do, I would have told you you're crazy, but it's an essential part of what we do yeah, now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I it's feel all like on there. It's an important information mm-hmm. source. The, the too much stuff, Dan, when you said like <coughs> your library to find five sources, and it's almost like at the college level and high school now, let's be honest, we expect more than probably what professors mm-hmm. of the past did. And that also makes it, I can remember like doing research papers and thinking, my gosh, I have to get more sources. Did I get the right sources? Did I get the best ones? Because it was the worst feeling when you went to a professor and like, you didn't have this work in there? How could you not have it? It's out there. It's right there. And you're, and you're sitting there thinking to yourself, I don't know. There's so much stuff. Of course, for you, that was like five years ago. So. Yeah, unbelievable. <laughs> See, I feel like I have a, un- uh, I guess maybe the most unique perspective being the, in between. being the the middle, right? Yeah. So you guys would have taught my <laughs> age in high school, right? Age Early on. But, but I, so I grew up learning in that older style, but I'm now having to teach in the newer style. Right. So I got a, I got a, I guess, unique perspective on the fact that I'm teaching in a way that was definitely not how I learned. And I don't think that it makes, I don't think, the question about how teachable are they, I think the teachableness or the, I don't know if that's a word. Kids are always kids. Teachableness of of students is never going to change. Students are always going to be teachable. The question is how, like you said, Mike, how we go about teaching it and going back to what we've all been talking about with that too much information, what are we teaching them, right? Mm -hmm. They're very teachable. It's just a matter of, how are we going to go about teaching them and making sure that we teach them how to siphon out all of that noise on the outside and, and get to what we really need to get to. And I think that's the, that's the key to being teachable in, mm-hmm. in today's society. That learning how to, how to search, not just go to oh, Google yeah. and ask yeah. a question. They'll, they'll type in a question. <clears throat> Right, you know, they'll, they'll which, type in the exact question. Which you know, computer folks tell you it's the worst way to learn to search. Yeah, you know, and and but they, there's some basic stuff there that we we got to do a better job as educators mm-hmm. of teaching them how to search. What is what is Google? Like I've had kids say to me, I've said to them, what's their what's your source? Well, it's Google. No, Google's your <laughs> your search a, engine. Right, it right, leads right. you to that is the card right, catalog. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> they don't even know what the card catalog. Right, 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 right. Yeah, exactly. Micro fish. Right, yeah. So yes. that, that I think the, we can move on to our next one now. We, now we're going to get into some of the, the more interesting history ones. We're going to get away from the education stuff. Uh, this one comes from our colleague, Kelly Frost, again, who submitted two questions to us. And the second one we're going to talk about, uh, did FDR positively influence our government? Mike, stop laughing. Um, I don't know how I right, do the so short l- stick let's just <laughs> Let's just talk that each of us have, some of us have a bias here. I think we all, all right. have a bias. We all have a bias here. Um Matt and myself are, we would call ourselves libertarian-esque, kind of. Um, Mike, how would you describe yourself? A constitutionalist. Okay. Dan? Jeez, I don't even know. We start talking a about hi- a hybrid. FDR. Yeah, <laughs> that makes me a little uh, queasy actually talking about it. All right, so you, you get our bias. We're going <laughs> to We're gonna try to be as fair as we can. Uh, Matt, you're going to kick us off on this one. All right, so positive, right? Is that positively Possibly. influence our government? I will say you want to talk about things like the FDIC. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You want to talk about things like Social Security safety net programs, right? From an economics perspective, coming off of right the Great Depression, America's economy is in shambles, and nothing that traditional 
politicians had been doing was working, right? So from an economic standpoint, initially, some of the things that he puts in place have basis, right? Mm-hmm. The, the federal... Uh, dep- what federal deposit insurance company, yes. right? So FDIC, the bank runs is really what made the the de- Great Depression just yes. exponentially. Everybody bad. always talks about the stock market crash. It was right. the bank runs, the bank runs, really right? So by insuring people's money with federal backed funds, right, you're ensuring that this doesn't happen again, right? That to me yeah. is at least mm-hmm. positively influencing the economy and the government because yes. without that, there is no guarantee that this doesn't happen again. We've had you know recessions, we've had these these downticks in the stock exchange, and instead of running to banks, right, people people have more confidence. Okay, mm-hmm. so things like that. I guess the idea of um, oh, what it, like trading. Uh, what was it trading on the margin, mm-hmm. right? Like a limp, making some rules associated with trading on the margin. Uh, what is that? The um, who does that? You just wrote. Um, is that like the, the SEC? The SEC, Security right. Exchange Commission. Yes. 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 Sorry. yes, yes, yes. Good. That's why I was trying to hand hand off to you there on that. You were writing down about the SEC there. Um, I think that those those regulations are are important as well. Yeah, th- those are two. And the hard thing for kids to understand is that. When we teach the depression, you know, they all think about the stock market crash, obviously, and I think the majority of Americans do too. But what they fail to see is that when the banks go out of business, that halts economic growth because J.P. Morgan and his, you know, cohort in the early 20th century created the system where banks and financing moves American progress in some ways. That uh, they they finance projects, great things. Um, all those things come to mind, and when that stops, all of a sudden everybody sits on their cash. Cash doesn't move, economy doesn't grow, and that's really what stifles the depression, and that's one of the big challenges that FDR has to has to reckon with. So we did name a lot of positive things there, and I think one of the other positive things is that he establishes a connection between the government and the American people. And one of the fundamental changes after the Great Depression is that the federal government, in a time of crisis, sets the standard that we have your back, American people. Well, it comes it back to the preamble. The it's the promoting right. the general welfare. Yes. And it's, you know, as much as I might begrudgingly admit <laughs> yeah. that, and what, you know, he, yeah. is, he is promoting the general welfare. Yep. He is the right man at the right time. Mm-hmm. You know, and whether you agree with him or not, um, him in his fireside chats, he has that yeah. personality, that persona to go out there and say the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, and people believe it. Um you know, you, you talk to folks who lived through the Depression. I had both sets of grandparents lived through the Depression with both with very different um, viewpoints. And my grandmother, my one grandmother, I mean, FDR walked on water because he was the savior of the country. Um, and, you know, whether you believed it, whether it was World War II, he was still the one in, in power and in charge. Um, the one thing that's interesting about FDR, you know, a lot of people lose track of, too, and it influences the government. I don't know whether positively or negatively, but it takes who's backing the two political parties and completely flips everything around. Uh, the Republican Party used to be the party of, of small business and all of a sudden becomes the party of big business, right? And the Democrats are a party of big business and they flip to small business. The immigrants, which, which party allegiance, allegiance they have, um, and all that's due to him and his policies. So whether you see that as positive or negative, that's that's a kind of a subjective thing. But so we kind of hit up a lot of the positives, some of the positives yeah. there. Let's talk about some of the negatives. The first one I got to jump in is court packing. Court packing. <laughs> well, yeah. Hey, we're, talk, we're talking about all the uh, Supreme Court justices that yeah. in place. Yeah. 
I mean, it's like you said. He, it falls back. It falls back on, uh, like you said, Mike, the American people feeling secure, feeling that um, you know that the government's got your back, as one of you guys just said. And I, you know, I, FDR, I think he's just he's really interesting to me. Actually, I just think that he is. I mean, consider it. You know, we always say this, but uh, he's in a wheelchair. He makes certain that his public persona is out there in such a way that he gets support. He does, like you said, the fireside chats. He, I don't know if he's the man, you know, it's, it, let's face it, there are other people in other parts of the world right now who are also coming into their own out of the depression. And, um, you know, we don't need to say Mussolini, we don't need to say Hitler, but hey, these are people who also <laughs> are emerging out of the 1930s and he just happens to, you know, to fall into the, uh, hey, I'm the president of the most powerful nation in the world right now. and. So he's, a, he's definitely a man for his time. I, I do actually sort of like FDR. I think that he, um, that he puts a lot of programs, and I think his heart was in it the right way at that time. Um, that's sort of how I feel about him. I have a generally a pretty good feeling about FDR all in all. Mm -hmm. But go for the, some <laughs> negatives. Go to so, it. So the court backing, uh, the idea that they're striking down some of his programs like the NIRA. The Agricultural Adjustment the Act. The Agriculture Adjustment Act. Um, where I want to come to mind that he struck down. Well, the court packing thing—that's a—that's a power grab on epic proportions. Yeah, the yeah, fact that I, his own party members yes. in Congress are he, saying he, you can't do that—he did something unbelievable. He united both parties in Congress against the president. Hmm. I mean, think about that. <laughs> he unites Congress to actually put their foot down to the executive branch. So you're saying FDR and Trump have some? Uh, uh, <laughs> but my point is, I guess, if we get some of the negatives, is that FDR seizes some power for the executive branch. That's no secret. He does that, and that power has not receded since then. Right. You, you've always had presidents with reset buttons on power. So really, our first power grab is arguably Andrew Jackson. And then you have the reset button. And then it's Lincoln. And then you have the reset button. And then it's Theodore Roosevelt. Oh, I'm impressed you went there. I thought you'd skip over that one. And then, and then Taft, you know, recedes that power a little bit, and then you've got Woodrow Wilson, and then the power really recedes. Harding, uh, Coolidge, uh, Hoover, and then you have FDR, and after FDR, it's all power grab from there by the executive branch, and that doesn't change. Presidents start doing more and more after FDR. Well, Japanese internments probably are negative too. I mean, well, it, Congress goes along with that. Yeah. Talking about that too, I mean, I, I think the legislative branch, Congress, is has willingly given that power, given that power yeah. up. Yeah. You and I have right. talked about that yeah, all the time. No, we totally agree on that. Well, why not? Why not let somebody who has term limits take the fall when right. they exactly. continue to get elected? They exactly. can pass right. the buck to the executive branch. I'll get reelected and keep my job, right. rather than instead of doing what's what's right for the American people. Um, any more negatives in FDR we can think of? Oh, I could go on for a while. I mean, well, I mean the pro. Okay, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the programs, continue programs, and it doesn't. I think World the, the War II biggest, ends the depression rather than yes. And the biggest deal. thing to me about the programs was the, the welfare of the people. Right preamble, like you said, it's it's important, and we talk about that in economics. Mm -hmm. That you know, welfare programs are everything. It's it's education, right? Public education. All of those things come from the welfare pot. But I think that the key downfall is that. You said it, right? In times of crisis. Mm -hmm. Well, when we're not in crisis, where's that rescinding? That's a good point. Right? Those, those programs are put into place. Things like the FDIC, the SEC need to stay there because they need to maintain that trust in the financial system. But everything else that was put into place can be rescinded and should yeah. only be like an emergency. Like an, an emergency an policy. Ebb, an ebb and flow type of thing. Correct. You know, when you and need so it. they know that when you need them, they're there. 
but also let's roll those back so that now the economy's good, mm-hmm. let's get that boost back and say, okay, let you don't need us anymore. Right. Let's go back to being self-sufficient. He did roll some programs back in 1937, and that actually brought unemployment. Because I, I can't believe I'm going to say I give FDR a little bit of credit here, too, <laughs> in the fact that he was wary of deficit spending. He, he <clears throat> I think, okay, it depends what lens you look at it through. If you look at it through the lens of he wanted the government to do everything, you're not going to like FDR. But if you look at it through the lens of America's drowning, FDR is going to, he's not, look, the New Deal's not going to pull him out of the water, but it will hold the head right, above water the until the next best thing yeah. comes along because nobody knew what that next best thing was. There were no metrics for this. Right. This hadn't, you know, the Panic of 1873 is probably the next closest thing, but really there's no, there's no real moment to look back and take yeah, it. Yeah, litmus. Take no litmus no, right. test. Yeah. Any final thoughts on FDR? All right, I think we covered that one pretty good. Get to Liam Anderson's question next. We have like seven questions from him. Because um, he just, he, he, he likes this stuff. But this is a good one. We actually got done teaching about this in my eighth grade classroom. Was the United States right to enter the Spanish-American War? Anyone want to take the lead on that? Mike? I don't know if we entered the war. I mean, we pretty much precipitate the right, war. Right, I mean, the, 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 main, the USS Maine blows up. Um there's a huge jump to conclusions about who's responsible for that. Well, FDR tells the paper. Not FDR. I'm sorry. Well, uh, yeah, Theodore Roosevelt tells oh, the papers. Yeah, oh, yeah. I had, had a slip there. I had a slip there. Please forgive me. Make uh, sure the kids <laughs> listen to this just for that. That's he great. says. He says. He tells the papers the next day. The yellow journalism papers. The media, which is coming into its own at this point, the Spanish did it right away. So there's really no chance for another narrative to get out there. No, and and. That yellow journalism does, I mean, that spins everything. I mean, you, you know, talk about the original fake news. Um, you know, it, it is. And no, I think, it really I is. I think all this discussion about quote-unquote fake news, I mean, it is what it is. It's yellow journalism. It's lying. It's bending the truth. It's whatever you, whatever you want to call around. it. It's right? been it's around. It's been around since, since the creation of the country. Now, because of that technology, it's more prevalent and available. Right, yeah. absolutely. But, I, I, like, Liam, no offense, but the... the um, the premise of the question is is, is a little questionable. Of do we do we have the right to enter? I think we push our way through the door because that's what we're looking. We're, we're really, looking for. A fight. We're more, looking for a fight. It's more about the Cuban insurrection. Were we right to enter in the Cuban insurrection? I guess would be the better way to phrase it. Right. Well, and, and well, look, Monroe Doctrine, you know, lays foreign policy of Western <coughs> Hemisphere is our backyard, mm-hmm. and everybody else stay out. Mm-hmm. And there's real concern about uh, countries coming in because mm-hmm. Latin American countries owe. Millions of dollars in debt to uh, European countries. So I think the U.S. is right to have the USS Maine there. The explosion and the the consequences of that are different story. Well, but. the USS Maine being there actually calmed things down. I mean, the the Spanish were actually happy to have the ship there because it sort of Havana cooled for a little bit yeah. with, with the insurrection. The United States has always had their eye longingly looking at Cuba ever since the founding of this country. I mean, John Adams wrote about it. And at a, we offered to buy Cuba several times, and the Spanish said they'd rather see it sink in the ocean. Um, but here's the thing is that the United States was okay with Spain having Cuba because Spain was weak. They were perfectly fine with it. I mean, Cuba controls the entire Caribbean. It's got great harbors, as we now have Guantanamo Bay. We now know that from this, this conflict. And we're okay with the Spanish having because they're so weak. But if the idea that a Britain, a France, or a Germany would get it terrified us. And as soon as... The Cuban insurrection begins and the rebels start trying to overthrow and everything starts moving. The United States is in a bit of a pickle because they had a no transfer clause with the Spanish saying, look, you can keep it, but if you're going to sell it, we're at war with the country you sell it to and you can't sell it to anybody. 
and that was kind of the way it shook shook out. So if you think about who the U.S. should root for in that rebellion, it should be the Spanish, because things are stable. But nobody, if if the Cubans win, what happens? It's, it's almost like a, it's right. keep keep the status quo thing. But, but ideologically, me, they should root for the Cubans. To me, I see it differently though. The the, the Spanish are relatively weak. The United States is looking to prove itself to the sure, world. No, yes. And so that's the, that's the catalyst. That's yeah. the excuse. Right? We've talked about that a little bit in my class recently because we're, we're currently talking about European imperialism, right? Mm-hmm. So we're right in that, that wheelhouse, right, that, that time period. And is it, is it the U.S.'s foray, you know, besides the open-door policy, besides gunboat diplomacy in Japan, right, mm-hmm. is this really their foray into, okay, i got to prove myself to these other... We talk about Germany having to prove itself going into World War One as, like, I'm not the little kid at the table. Is this the U.S. maybe trying to at least establish itself as an imperial Absolutely. power and make sure that it's not the... the one of my kids this morning, actually, Michaela Ock, oh, great, great. She said that they're... they're trying to uh it's like the first time you get to sit at the grown-ups table on thanksgiving right right? like you're there but you're still kind of viewed as the kid at the table right right? so european imperialism is going on britain uh france germany they're all building these imperial empires scramble for africa all of that stuff and and these empires are being built is the u.s just kind of trying to throw its hat in the ring and say hey by the way, we're over here. You know, I know you forget about us, but we're in this too. Yeah. And what are we picking up? <laughs> right. Wake Island. Right. Midway right. Island. Right. American right. Samoa. You know, Philippines, okay. Right. Puerto right. Rico and, and, you know, and Cuba are close by. But honestly, what are, I mean, compared yeah. to, you know, the split of, you know, dividing up Africa and, and other places. I think it's just kind of maybe a whole lot of natural put ourselves resources. in a place on the ladder of right. the power chain. Exactly. Like, okay, those we want to just kind of yeah. leapfrog Spain yeah. here. Like, can we just show everybody in the world, like, at least we're better than Spain, right? Yeah. Give us some credit. Well, and the Philippines, really, in the Philippine-American War, nobody ever talks about that. That oh, makes yeah. the United States look around the corner at the cost of being an empire and oh my gosh, we have to deny people the consent to govern and their self-termination if we want to be an empire. We have to do these things. And Britain, that's just another day in the park. To the British and the French and the Germans and the European. It's they, and the Spanish, too. Because let's face it, that's what got the United States involved is the Spanish doing these awful things, supposedly, to their colonial subjects. And then we turn to the Spanish and the Philippines, and that makes us almost peer on the corner of empire and be like, I don't know if that's worth it. I don't know if that's in our ideology. Whereas the British look at that and go, that's just another rebellion to put down. Well, I like the way we put it to the, to the Filipino people. is you overthrow the Spanish government and we'll, yeah. we'll support you in independence. And then as soon as that, as soon as the war's over, well, yeah, that whole independence thing, yeah, we were kind of, you know, not serious about that. And then which leads that insurrection, which is which is nasty. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it has a religious aspect to it, too. Yeah. Um, folks forget that some of the, um, some of the folks in the, the Philippines... I believe it's the southeastern portion are uh, Islamic, and they don't want another another Christian uh, country coming in and taking over. So there's, it's it's a nasty and it's nasty. I mean, they're they're um, they're beheading uh, mm-hmm. prisoners of war. Um, you know, the Americans are going after civilians. The civilian population then turns around and you know is poisoning troops, and mm-hmm. it's it's just it's downright ugly. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is why we end up backing out. You know. Spanish American War. We can close the book on it. All right, done. Bully, <laughs> bully. bully. Yes. <laughs> uh, what were the chief causes? This comes from Brock Ostrom. What were the chief causes of both world wars? So we could sit here and list out the facts and stuff. I think, but I think it'd be better if we just kind of each took uh, throughout there what we thought of the most important causes 
to us personally. I mean, World War One, we have Maine, militarism, alliances, imperialism, nationalism. If we could just pick a few of those things, maybe, and kind of focus on that, I think that'd be the best way to go about it. Um, Dan, why don't you kick us off? World yeah, let's go with alliances. Let's just talk alliances. a little bit about alliances yeah. in World War One. It's just it's so entangled, and they just you know there's so many different. Uh, Treaties, whether they're secret or whether they're open or whatever, it's just it, it's people are people are trying to find themselves. The different national groups are trying to find themselves, and it's just it's a tough situation. I mean, um, I always get a kick out of that story with the Archduke. You know what I mean? And that the the whole Kabrinovich story mm-hmm. and throwing that bomb and the people who got out and the people who stayed and hey, had they not. Uh, rounded Princip up, they would have never known that those people were Serbians, and who would have guessed that the Serbs and the Russians got into it, and the French? It just, it just really spirals. It, it's such a, it's such a volatile situation over there in the Balkans at that time. I mean, it was just who you, you needed a scorecard to really know who was in line. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Right, right, and exactly I mean, it's right. gonna, it's gonna roll out of control at some point, and where, where it's gonna stop, who knows? I gotta agree so, with you, Dan. I think alliance is the number one cause. For I think World it's War. absolutely crazy. People weren't really certain what you know. Obviously, they wanted to try out their weapons and all the other things that went along with it. But mm-hmm. honestly, to me, that's like the big thing of not knowing who is allied with who mm-hmm. and the feelings between different groups towards different empires. And if really. and if <laughs> if you didn't have the alliance system there, does Russia even back Serbia? Is it just a? It, it's probably just a local conflict between Austria-Hungary and Serbia. There've been two Balkan wars before it. Yep. There've been two Balkan wars in the decade before, and if if there's no alliance system there, granted, the alliance system is tied by nationalism. Right. The idea of Slavic That's, peoples right, coupled right, with right. the bull. Right. So that alliance is natural because of ethnic groups and nationalism, things like that. That's why I have nationalism in my second biggest cause, being extreme pride in your country and, and, and protecting ethnic groups and peoples and things like that. Um, that's why I have nationalism in my second biggest cause. But, Matt, go ahead. I, I think... I'm going to maybe take an un, unpopular position Because you want to argue. Because I'm, no, not because I'm going to want to argue, because I'm going to come after the Brits a little bit right now. So oh, everybody, everybody who... who uh, knows anything about our World Wars class knows that uh, Mr. DeMauro has a tendency to be a little bit of an Anglophile. <laughs> and so it's the only nation I really like outside the United States. That's that's true. That's true. And so my my argument here is that, you know, Britain is is Germany and Britain, two of probably the biggest players and, and the extension of the war happens, let's be honest, because Germany and Britain Just to be are clear, we're still in the first world war. The first world war, correct. I'm sorry. Well, you're good. Uh, and so Germany and Britain are really extending this war. I mean, France is there, but they're kind of, you know, as you would say, they're 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 defending. They're not really doing much else. So Britain and Germany are really the the ones standing towards the end, taking swing after swing at each other. And what is their two biggest motivations, right? And I would argue that it's militarism uh, and imperialism. That idea that I was just talking about with the U.S. of wanting to have a seat at the table, and then Britain on the other side. I think Britain's eyeing up some of the territory that's up for grabs right now. And Britain, the biggest empire in the world, is saying, we got a chance to scoop up some territory here. Why not throw our hat into the ring, right? I I don't see necessarily, I know we talk about Belgian neutrality and all of that, but the reality of the fact is without that militarism idea of we have to make sure we have the the best Navy, we're the biggest power in Europe, we can't let Germany get that, is part of the reason why... Britain gets involved. And then on top of that, the imperialism of, well, not only do I want to prove that I'm the best, but geez, when this all shakes out, 
somebody's going to get a whole bunch of benefit and I might as well put it into my pocket versus letting it go into somebody else's. So for me, that militarism and imperialism from Britain and Germany is, is what makes it so big. It might not be the necessary spark that starts the fire, but the fact that it lasts so long, that it's so devastating, that it's so large, uh, I think you have to tie back to militarism and imperialism for sure. Wouldn't that be German nationalism, though, that wants that place at the table? Wouldn't that make that cause nationalism? See, I'm, I was looking, you know, the question is, what are the chief, what is the chief causes of both world wars? And I which, my initial reaction, if oh, you're going to lump them together, to me, without question, nationalism. nationalism. Yeah, true. Okay, yes, true. Yes, if you're yes, going to lump them both so together, World War II. It, absolutely. So why, absolutely. I mean, why don't we do that then? Then let's talk about the nationalism of both. And right. I had written down for World War to uh, the Treaty of Treaty Versailles, Versailles, the biggest cause, day, along yeah. with Adolf Hitler. Yeah. Which, if you were to like take it in succession, nationalism causes the Treaty of Versailles, right. with a little bit of imperialism dashed in there and stuff. But right. let's all face it; it's 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 about hurting the Germans and their pride, and and then Hitler goes out of that. So it does well, come back so to nationalism. Well, and so is the Japanese Empire. Yeah. The Japanese Empire is built around. Nationalism. I mean, yeah, and they, 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 they sell that hard, right? And you know, all, all the stuff you guys are talking about with World War One, absolutely. Alliances, I agree, um, but those alliances don't exist without the nationalists, nationalists oh, to yes. back it up. Yes. Yes. True, true. To that's back why it I, up. I see those two as tied. Yeah, that's right. Slavic, and, and, the yeah. Slavic nationalism. Right, the Slavic, sure. Slavic nationalism, the, the, the Russians tied to them. Um, World War Two. I mean, you know, you have Italian mm-hmm. nationalism, and you know, and folks forget they're they're even you know conquering places in um, in East Africa, you know, yeah. Ethiopia, and places like that. You have Germany going out and taking. Well, the fascism is and, founded in nationalism. Absolutely, fascism is one hundred percent founded. It's almost in a right. consciousness, though. I think people realizing, like in the Balkans, Serbian. I'm Serbian. I'm Slavic. It's that consciousness of the whole thing that I am this. Right. And I deserve this, and this is what our nation is, and their alliance are then based off of that. One thing about it too, the, even the United States, even though they're trying to remain isolationist, that is a nationalist policy. I mean, they, we associate that with Washington. That's part of our nation. We were very prideful in both before we entered both world wars. We are we're above this. We're not getting into this. This is mm-hmm. ridiculous. And then we're you know, we're drawn into both. But to me, nationalism. I agree. By far, is is the cause of both. If you combine them, yeah. Together. If you combine them into one, that's true. That's, that's true. why we have him on the that's, show. He's, the, he's that's wise. why he's the Pumba, right? He's the Pumba, not Pumba. Pumba. Oh, Pumba, right? Pumba is from the Lion King. Pumba's from the Lion King. That's right. Oh man, that's right. That would be you. Pumba. Oh, Pumba. Oh, thanks, thanks. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, nationalism alliances for both world wars. I, I like this question a lot. This next one. So, in the, in the same theme. Uh, oh, before I do that, as far as people were responsible for the Second World War, everybody jumps to Adolf Hitler. We're talking about in class today. George Clemenceau. George Clemenceau, right. Mm-hmm, yeah. Leader of France mm-hmm. in Versailles, turns mm-hmm. the knife in Germany's back. Yeah. Just to throw that out there in order to get the French, I just had to get that in. Um, more nationalism. Yeah, more, it, is, it is. Again, it's back to nationalism. Ali Benson, thank you for this question. This is going to be interesting. Should the United Kingdom have signed a peace accord with Nazi Germany after Dunkirk? Hypothetically, preventing the destruction of their country, preserving something for themselves. Uh, Winston, we just had the episode in Churchill. He's by rolling his grave with this question. We're talking right about now. the Munich Pact here. What are we talking about? We're talking no, a hypothetical. I think oh, hypothetical. Sorry. Read it again to me. One more uh, should the UK have signed a peace accord with Nazi Germany after Dunkirk? Oh. So the British Army is oh. going back onto their shores. I'll get it. Um, okay. Is is would it be would it have been prudent for Churchill or whoever to negotiate? 
You could understand piece. if he did. I mean, Britain's on the ropes at that point. Yeah. Um, but to me, yeah. again, he's another one of those guys, the right guy at the right time. I mean, and we mentioned I mentioned this at the uh, the Winston uh, Churchill podcast, which go back and check that out. Uh, not too long, but um, you know, he Churchill views himself as a, as another Nelson, and that instead of having a fleet, he has the nation. He was born and, for that moment, as right? Life, yeah. Every man will do his duty, um, and and so I don't think Churchill had it in him, personality wise, to make the surrender there. I think if the army is not brought off the beaches at the way that they are, if they're brought off mm-hmm. in maybe half the number or less, Britain is at a point where it cannot fight. It it, it has to negotiate to it, at least keep some form of the British government, because otherwise it's game over. Br- Germany will roll over roll, right. the, the British. So I, as, as the th- events happen, I don't think it was the right thing to do to surrender or to, to, to negotiate peace if it didn't work out the way it had. You know, using hypothetical, if Dunkirk was a disaster, he would have been forced to. And I don't think the British people would have would have been willing to fight on the beaches, you know, in, mm-hmm. and on the, you know, in the shore and all that. So nationalism, absolutely, right, right. Matt, <clears throat> I guess that the question is, should he have signed the peace accord? I mean, you know, we have the benefit of obviously having the 2020 vision because it, it happened, knowing what Adolf Hitler was and what Adolf Hitler was doing. Obviously, my answer is no, he should not, because he was really the only thing standing between Adolf Hitler and world domination. And the one thing that we haven't brought up yet is Britain the fact stands that alone. If, he, if he defeats Britain, does he invade the Soviet Union? Because I, I like to talk about in my class quite a bit, Hitler gets frustrated at the fact that he stalls, right? The, the Battle of Britain, the that bombing mo- that of London. That sure helps around your country. Yeah, he, he can't get onto land in Britain. And so he kind of gets frustrated, and what's he do? He turns his attention to the only other the only other place he can go, which is to the east, right? Violating the non-aggression pact that they mm-hmm. had, right? And and going into Russia or the Soviet Union at the time. And so that then brings the Soviet Union in, which you know we all know is is the fatal flaw, right? For those of you who are listening from my class, right? You don't invade Russia. We always they say are crazy. There's two right? things. You don't do it. You never get into a land war in Asia and never pee into the wind. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the thing is here, obviously, I think knowing what we know about Adolf Hitler and what he was. Britain, no, absolutely should not have signed a peace mm-hmm. accord. At that time, I think I'm, I'm tempted to agree with you that would it have been the right thing for the British? Very possibly. But is it what's right for the world? I got to say no, right? I got to say no because Lord only knows what happens, right? If Hitler takes, There's you know, just one so of those much things. History like what? after Dunkirk. Right. I can't, it's hard right. for me to even. Yeah, Dan, even, Dan what, do you, what do you think? Think about that because. You just you just look back at it and you say, oh my gosh, so much happens following Dunkirk. I mean, it's just it's I for me, I just can't even like look back and think to myself, hey, they should have signed an agreement. You know what I mean? It's hard for me to even consider that. But mm-hmm. um, and again, you guys are more the authorities on Winston. I was uh, uh, a foot from Winston Churchill's uh, cigar. I know I missed the podcast. <laughs> Did I tell you this down in Pennsylvania? Yeah, I played the stall eighty four lumber course. 
and uh, there was a special room back there where they had the butt of Winston Churchill's cigar entombed awesome. in glass where you could walk up to it and touch the glass. Churchill's cigar. <laughs> but, um, no, that's a hard question for me to think about. That, to me, is, um, there's like you, what you said, we, we're looking back now. I mean, mm-hmm. um, God, imagine all the great, crazy stuff that wouldn't have happened had they signed that treaty. It would have changed, I mean, who knows. Would Hitler have invaded the Soviet Union as quickly as he did? I say no. I say Hitler would have just settled on his laurels. He would have built his wall. He would have sat tight, and he would have kept his agreement with Stalin. And they always say that Stalin, when he violates that non-aggression Yeah, so I want to get to this. Thank you, That he literally, he doesn't speak for like three days. Yeah. He He doesn't speak to his wife. To anyone for three days. He was just, he couldn't believe that he had been fooled, is I believe the way it's described mm-hmm. in history. He had been fooled by Adolf Hitler. Imagine that, Hitler fooling someone. Right. Yeah. yeah. At first, at first he thought the reports were false. Yeah. He thought that there's no way Hitler turned on me. He trusted the one. Yeah. So a guy, a guy that's paranoid, right, in right. the first place, trusts the one guy in history you can't really trust to keep his promise on <laughs> to anything. To anybody, and, Well, my thing is, Hitler writes in Mein Kampf about Lebensbraum. The idea that the German people need to expand eastward. So if I'm Stalin, I, I know this day is coming. <laughs> I know this day is coming. He's written that he's going to do it in his manifesto. But it gives you it gives you an, in some insight to the charisma mm-hmm. that Hitler had to be able to convince people. Don't you hate giving him compliments? I did. No, we talked about no matter what it is. Yeah, today. I mean, it, it it really does show his his ability to get people to believe certain things. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, just look at the end of the fall. Uh, I watched that movie, Downfall. It's in, entirely in German. And the movie did such a great job of how encapsulated people were to this guy. How the, the, the suicides in the bunkers when uh, the Soviets are pounding down the doors. Uh, it, it's just, it's fascinating. It's fascinating and it's terrifying. Yeah, it's it's one of those. It's it's like why do Americans watch Criminal Minds and find that so fascinating? It's that it's that type of thing. We're attracted to it, and I and I don't know what it is about the human the humans that we're attracted to that. Back to your point of the question, though, I think um, I think Churchill deep down thought he could pull the United States in. I really do. I think deep down he thought he could have the the clout and the charisma working with FDR to pull the United States in, which I think gave him hope in the Battle of Britain. And certainly there's the Lend-Lease Act, and there's things the United States is already doing. And I think that he believed it's only a matter of time before the U.S. gets pulled in. Because FDR was not an isolationist president, and I think that he knew he could reason with him to pull him into the war. And, and Churchill, I think, is saying to himself, look, all we got to do is get the U.S. in, and we're good. And I think he keeps telling himself that throughout the whole process in the Battle of Britain. And I think that he really put a lot of his emphasis into it. And the fact that, logistically... It was going to be difficult to invade Britain by Operation Sea Lion or anything else. I think that uh, strategic bombing had its limitations at times in, in cities to subdue a whole country, especially when they um, when the Royal Air Force gets the ability to combat the Luftwaffe. Not to mention the the, the Nazis, the Luftwaffe. Um, uh, Hermann Göring, the commander of Luftwaffe, was completely incompetent. Oh, yeah. Completely in common in a lot of ways. So I, I think when we look at the Battle of Britain, we almost look at it as Britain's on, on a knife's edge, and they were. But it, when you dig deeper into the whole story, there are a lot more things in favor of the British than we realize. Well, the British, I mean, the British have always had the benefit of their geography, right? I mean, we talk like, about like, that like all the time. United States, yeah. It, it, absolutely. The, 
the fact that the only way, you know, because of their Navy, the only way to get in is is through the air initially, and, and you have to destroy uh, the Nazi what, German what they no built. Navy, essentially. Right, right. So, thanks to the... <laughs> That's one thing good we didn't talk about today. Yeah. At least, at least the Germans couldn't invade Britain with their navy. At they that even point, reached right? a lot of the French ships. Correct me if I'm wrong. Right, I yeah. They were no, using absolutely. some of the French ships. They had French ships firing on British ships in some cases. Well, yeah, there was or actually a, there was actually a battle on the north coast of Africa. That's what I was. The Vichy, the Vichy, uh, yes. the Vichy navy. The British go in and basically tell the the French, uh, "Scuttle your ships, or we're coming in." And the Vichy government's like, yeah, no. Um, <laughs> and so the British came in and it was destroyed. So the Germans couldn't have it. Yeah, so the Germans couldn't have it to control the Mediterranean. No okay. Yeah. It's intense. Yeah. Good stuff. Our, like fi- our final like question it. for the final day. Final question. Matt D. Simone's been dying uh, for us to answer this question. Matt D. Simone? He is years. For years. Uh, for years. Oh, so, Matt, okay. this one's for you, man. Who, who, who is he like again, that show? Oh, it's uh, Alex P. Keaton from uh, Family Ties. Matt oh, Simone is Alex P. Keaton. Keaton. With the briefcase? With yeah, the well, briefcase? He, he, is, he is a Republican guy. He thinks Nixon is the greatest man to ever live. Uh-huh. So, so uh-huh. Here we go. Matt's question is, was Nixon a good slash successful president? Oh, man. Mike, so, Mike started off. Just, oh, okay. Just, uh, 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 just go. So, uh-huh. it, good and successful. Those are two interesting. All right. So, is he successful? Yes. He, I've always made the argument, I've tried to lay out the argument, he is perhaps the smartest and dumbest president we've ever had at the same time. Um, foreign policy-wise, um, I mean, he, he softens uh, our, our stance with the Soviet Union. He visits the Soviet Union. He visits China. Yeah, detente. Um, right? Yeah, you know, the, the salt trees, which are, are just... People, I think, forget how historic those were. Absolutely, right. You're you're easing that tension because I, I mean, I was in school in the '70s. I remember doing uh, <laughs> duck and cover drills <laughs> in the hallway, not underneath desks, but still, it was it was a very real thing that you know the world could end tomorrow. We're laughing because we were thirty seconds. Exactly, I get that. We were not there. <laughs> was he a good president? I <sighs> successful? Yes, good. I have to say no. Mm-hmm. The guy just flat out um, cheated, lied, and did things that were unlawful. Obstruction that we would, of justice. Yeah. And, and even to me, even beyond obstruction of, of justice, he's using the IRS to go after his his uh, opponents. He's lying under you know, when he's being questioned about you know uh, his conversations. He's not the nicest guy in the world. He has to me, he has just a huge character flaw in the fact he's so. Unsure of himself, especially I think after the um, the JFK uh, debate, where he I mean, it's crushes him on the radio. Well, he crushes him on the radio, but the TV everybody thinks Kennedy wins because of numerous reasons, and and Nixon is an arrogant guy. But that 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 fatal flaw of I think I'm going to lose the election. When when you look at the election in '72, he he does a really really well. But and I don't think Watergate is the result of him winning. The or, yeah, the, him winning is the result of the Watergate, you know, um, break-ins and things like that. But he's just that. Right, he would have won without Watergate. Oh, absolutely. He would have won without absolutely. Watergate for sure. And you know, people have said to me, well, you know, what if he just came clean and just you know was you know admitted to what he had done? Would mm-hmm. the American people have forgiven him? Unlike Clinton, I say no to that. Clinton, I think if he had just come out and said, you know, yeah, I, I made mistakes, right? This is between myself and my wife. People would have been up in arms for two weeks. The American public's ADD. We would have moved past it. Because Nixon broke the law. That's, that is, 
And, and I think it gets uh, exacerbated because Ford comes in and then pardons Nixon before anybody can do anything, you know, legally. So that's that's kind of my take it's on it. It's a little dirty pool, right? There. Yeah, right, exactly. He was a great Dan. politician that was a little bit overtaken by technology. He was a little bit overtaken <laughs> by the way things were changing in the 70s. And I think he, he thought maybe, okay, a lie or two white lies or whatever, I can overcome these. And they just started compounding themselves. And then he gets so, so deep in, he just realizes there is nothing more that I can do. Like, it's not until that last minute when you see, even the, even the day when he gets on that Air Force, was it Marine One he gets on when he leaves yeah, the White House? Yeah, And he turns and he, he makes that symbol that everybody thinks about. I think he was still thinking from just a couple days before, I, I think I can do this. I think I can, but now it's like, Holy Christmas, I blew it, it's over. And you see that moment he looks up at the White House sink and whatever happened to me? What? Because he was a great politician. He, I mean, he made it through two decades of basically being a great politician. And But the things he did just were not. And not to say that they were any worse. I mean, if you look back at all the presidents and you say, hey, let's judge them by what they did in office um, that people knew about or not knew about, he might not have been the worst president, right. even if no. you went after the Democrats. Some other presidents might have done worse things, but it caught up to Nixon. And a few lies here and there in the tape, and it was just a mad, it was a snowball again right. that was just rolling downhill, and he just couldn't stop it. I love his body language when he's addressing the press. Hmm. When the president, the people have to know whether the president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And he stands with his arms folded. And I show the, I show the video of it so that the students can see it. I'm like, just look at the body language because it just, it speaks volumes. I guess, I mean, for me, obviously, this is before, before my time. Not as much before my time as it is before Mr. DeMuro's time here. But, uh, <laughs> so basically everything that I know, you know, comes from my study of, of history uh, and, you know, seeing clips and talking to people about it and stuff like that. And I like what you did, you know, kind of breaking him up into good and or successful, right? Um, my only experience with him in, in, from teaching is obviously with that detente, right, salt treaties. And so uh, the idea that, you know, he is able to ease these tensions between the, uh, the U.S. and the Soviet Union at a time when they were probably, arguably, almost at its peak, right? He sees, you know, he, he has seen uh, the, the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. He has seen all these things happen in his political lifetime. And he knows, like, listen, we, we are probably on the brink of a, a, a nuclear war, the nuclear proliferation that is happening, and he realizes that. That is something that nobody else was willing to do at the time. So you can't argue with the success of that. Um, didn't didn't Nixon visit China too? Yeah. Oh, he walks he on the wall. Totally walks on walks on the wall. wall. Right. Visits China. Open relations with China right. made that which had yeah. been not anything that right. he considered prior to that. I mean, his his relationship with his Secretary of State Henry Kissinger is huge. The decisions foreign. Okay, Nixon's best legacy. I think everyone around the table could probably agree on is that, in my opinion, he established the foundations for the United States to win the Cold War. He, he goes to China, opens up relations with them, yep. which scares the bejesus out of the Soviet Union because they're not exactly on good terms with China at the right, time. Right. And the United States just went and got along, is getting along kind of now with you know one of the largest communist, I believe it would be the second largest communist power in the world. Absolutely. Technically, actually larger than the Soviet Union by population. By population, um, yes, by but the, the second mass, most, no, but, right. the sec- but the second most powerful. 
And that was a, a genius stroke of a move. Absolutely. Um, and again, I think Henry Kissinger deserves a lot of credit for that, but he's still appointed him, well, obviously. Wait, he's, he's, he's easing tensions yes. with both of the right. top powers. You right. know what I mean? Not only the Soviets, but the Chinese as well. I mean, there's not really another powerful communist Cuba? nation. I mean, but not powerful. Yeah, but, but Cuba's because, not doing right. anything without the backing of the Soviet Union Absolutely. or China. You yeah. know what I mean? So that is is literally, I like what you said there, setting the groundwork for the end of the Cold War, right? Like, Reagan gets a lot well, of the credit, no, no. Gorbachev, but but he put that in not place. Not only that, look at what it does to China. Yeah. Because when the U.S. steps into China, Uncle Sugar, as John Krilligrew, my college professor at Brockport, used to say, he creates now this market for China that is going to literally, as Napoleon called them, the sleeping giant. It's going to allow them to, to prosper and move forward economically. I mean, you look at China now and you look at the economics of that place and you say, hey, this has almost got to come back to around the early 70s with Nixon. These are the events that happened under his, his watch, you know, and... Uh, so it, it is interesting, and I know that uh, kids have all, a lot of kids have seen that Forrest Gump, and they get a kick out of the ping-pong <laughs> diplomacy. <laughs> but really, what is ping-pong diplomacy? It's really just opening up China and America, you know, and it's creating this, this market for Chinese goods in many ways. Getting the conversation yeah. started. No, no, I guess on the negative side, a couple of things. Mike says he's the dumbest, the smartest president. Um, I call him a tragic Greek hero because he has wonderful qualities, but yet many flaws. So foreign policy, I've always said Nixon deserves in some ways, a, a, a good score. But on the flip side of that, let's talk about an even foreign policy. Salvador Allende in Chile, mm. right? He's first popular socially elect, uh, socialist elected leader in, in the Western Hemisphere and elected, and all of a sudden he's out. And we all understand that mm-hmm. Nixon's probably closely tied to that. Another thing is, the Pentagon Papers come out, um, de-escalate, we got to talk about Vietnam, supposedly de-escalating the war in Vietnam, you know, peace with honor, while escalating through carpet bombing in Laos and Cambodia, which destabilizes Cambodia for the Khmer Rouge, right, and you right, get all wow. those problems. Right, right, so, right. so while Nixon and, and then you know the hiding of that whole thing, not really being truthful to the American people about the Vietnam War. But to be fair, Nixon, I guess no president had been truthful about the Vietnam War from the very beginning. No. Not even Americans Kennedy. can't handle the truth. And, and, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. You know, That's and so, and to, so I guess to be fair to him on Vietnam. He's the guy that got left holding the bag, so to speak. Is he president during that that El Sa- like El Salvador too? And like El Salvador, they're they're backing the El Salvadorians that end up with the the mass like murders as well using American weapons. That was that went on for so long. I'm not sure. If, I'm not sure if it starts with him or in. Ford. Definitely by Carter. Uh, and, def- and absolutely in Reagan's. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was. The, I knew but it was. Yeah, I'm not sure. If it went I just that didn't long. know who started yeah, that's that. That's a good whole question. Because sure. Latin America, you know, Latin America is a is a messy, messy deal at that time. It's hard right? being beneath the United States. You know, know what I mean? It's hard being what? Hard being 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 beneath the United States. Mm. It's tough. <laughs> nice. It's difficult. Figuratively. Any or? final thoughts on Nixon? Interesting guy, uh, really a, a, a study in in success and failure all yeah. at the same time. Maybe if Matt DeSimone listens to the podcast, he can leave us some feedback on his his opinions, right, on, on what the, the Absolutely, thing is. And, and if he's unsure, he'll just start throwing things out there until something sticks, because that's what Matt does. Yep, see what sticks to <laughs> I, I, I put that comment on his report card almost nice. every chance I get is question, like questioning ability is solid or... 
you know, really participates in class well. Because you guys, Matt, you know, you ask a question of the class, and Matt just starts tossing. When stuff he was there. in, when he was in <laughs> ninth and tenth grade, uh, the the current seniors now, they told me that uh, other teachers used to have to put they put a number on his questions. So we'd put uh, we put the number three lines on the backboard, and every time he asked a question, we'd erase one line. Because if we let Matt keep questioning, we'd never get through. And the great part was about that. It sometimes it lead us in really, really awesome directions. Right. We might not ever get anything done about right. what we needed to get done that day, but it always led us in a positive direction. So thank you, Matt DeSimone. Uh, here brings me to my next point. Uh, we need some more questions. We do have some still kicking around, but we really need more questions. I think if you've listened to our episodes, you understand now that we want uh, debate-style questions because we do want to talk about what you want to hear, uh, whether you're a student, co- uh, fellow staff member, or somebody just you know stumbled out on stumbled on YouTube and found us, please submit us questions. You can do that at hollyhistory65 at gmail.com or tweet us at, at hollyhistory. And uh, if you're a student in school, just drop a question off, fold it up in a piece of paper to uh, one of us and the social studies department, we can get that answered. We hope you like our new art on oh, the page, uh, Crossing the Delaware, all of us in the boat hanging out. And and I have to point out, some, some, some students came up to me and they're like, why is Mr. Light in the back of the boat. <laughs> and I had to explain it to him that Mr. Light made his own boat. He's very crafty. Okay. And if anybody's going to steer us, it should be Mr. Light because he knows what okay. he's doing. Well, I, like, I liked Mrs. Hammeter actually on the front of the boat. It's breaking up the ice. Breaking up the ice, man. I thought that See, was See, I thought cool. Mrs. Hammeter should be George Washington, though. Uh, it had to be the poobah. And we're going to change those images as the shows go on. We'll probably use that image for a couple shows, and then we'll switch them. If that's something else you'd like to submit, submit an image that you think would be funny for us to be and who you'd like to see in what spot, and we can drop the faces in there. Absolutely. I think it's important, too, to say that they can, I mean, if you're watching us on YouTube, leave a, leave a question in the comments you can leave on one of the comments, too, yeah. as well. You Dan know, Stanley whatever did is, Whatever is easiest for you to get us those questions. But, you know, in order to keep the episodes coming, we really need to uh, get some questions that we can sink our teeth into. Yeah, you drive, you drive the episodes. I'll tell you who I'd love to hear a question from is uh, Mary Jo Pearson. Absolutely. She, she's been a big fan of the show. I actually talked to her about it. And Mary Jo, give us a question. We'll make sure we debate it. Maybe we can have you on the show sometime. I, I think I mentioned that to her. I saw her at the, the sit meeting a couple weeks ago. So uh, we want to thank you for joining us today. And I also want to throw one more thank you out to uh, Lisa Osier in the library. She's been really great about letting us use the, the quiet room here and getting us the mics and hooking us up with Audacity and the laptop. Uh, so thank you very much, uh, Lisa, for letting us do this. We couldn't do it without you. So this is Holly History signing off. Thank you for another great show.